Preaching today from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Find that on page 1391 in the Bibles in the Seats. Listen as I read God's word. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Let your eyes go up just a little bit. You'll see in verse 22 that the command of God is to love one another fervently with a pure heart. It's the context of this passage in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. In other words, this is going to give us some practical instructions on just what we can do to nurture that genuine, sincere, pure love from the heart for one another. It seems appropriate that this week is Valentine's Day, a day in which we are reminded of uh, the romantic love that is given to husbands and wives. And it may be that there are some husbands here that wish there were a manual that would give you some practical pointers as to how you could do that. Well, I know that uh, I have fumbled many times along the way and have wished for such a manual. Uh, fortunately, God has given me a good wife that has uh, overlooked many of my, my missteps and has also prompted me along the way. Peter prompts us along the way as to what it is to love one another. Peter gives very practical directions in this case. It starts with some things to, to put off. Some things to to stop doing. And then progresses to something to do, something to put on. And I I phrased it that way. To love one another is to put off some things and to put on something else. As you look at this passage, if you look at verse 3, it ends with this phrase. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Now this forms the truth that will guide Peter's exhortation. I summarized it last week in this way, that since God has saved you, love one another. There's a truth and then an action that follows after that. And this time Peter puts the truth at the end of of the actions. I can summarize it this way. Since you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, put off and put on. So we're going to look at those things that Peter says to put off and those things that we are to put on. We'll begin with the things to put off. I'll have you remember that this letter is a letter that Peter wrote to a church that was suffering persecution. Thinking of it in that light, you might come to think, well, what is it? that a suffering church would face that might divide the church. Remember that context of Peter's command to love one another. What is it that a suffering church would face that would divide them? And if you're like me, you might guess that Peter would call attention to their suffering. 
Maybe it was that there were some that were in poverty and some that were well off, and that was creating tension. Or maybe there were some that had been cut off by their family, shunned by them because of their conversion to Christ, and they, they had difficulties then relating to others in the church. Perhaps they, some were suffering physical harm. There are a variety of things that suffering bring into a church. You might expect that Peter would call attention to them. Here in the West, they would be things that, uh, that we would be especially in tune to because we live in a lot of comfort. I think it came to my mind because we imagine the types of things that they suffered as bringing a lot of negative pressure into just the fellowship of the believers. But that's our context, a context that is not very acquainted with suffering at all. Because of that, the idea of doing without is something that is very far removed, and so I tend to think of that as being a huge deal. But Peter doesn't mention that at all. You notice that? Peter doesn't mention suffering as something that would bring difficulties in the fellowship of the church. And his silence on that leads us to wonder, could it be that we have come to love our comforts so much we can't imagine living without them? Could it be that, uh, that we've got it all wrong? Well, this and the rest of Scripture tell us that our circumstances, like the circumstances of suffering, are, are not circumstances, are not things that fundamentally Hinder your relationship to God through Jesus Christ. And neither do your circumstances fundamentally govern how you relate to one another in the Christian fellowship. I've seen this. We were in China. I witnessed brothers and sisters in Christ that were suffering persecution. And the way they faced that served to deepen their love for God and their genuine, sincere, pure love for one another. So if the struggles of persecution don't threaten the unity of the church, what does? Well, look at what Peter mentions. Malice, deceit hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. We conclude then that it is not our circumstances that threaten the unity of the church. It is our sins. It's not our circumstances that threaten the unity of the church. It is our sins. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. Be careful here and don't think of this as a complete list of the sins that can harm the unity of the church. Rather, Peter chooses to call out these sins because 
they proved to be devastating attacks on the unity and the fellowship of the faith. And they also proved to be an attack on you individually. And in a fascinating way, Peter is going to be speaking about loving one another as a body, but then also directs it to your growth in maturity of faith. You'll see that these sins are not just ones that damage the body of, of, of Christ, but they damage you as well. So as we think about these specific sins, I want you to hear them as ones that the Lord is confronting as damaging to the church and damaging to your own growth as a Christian. Let's just work through these one by one. The first one that Peter mentions is malice. It's another word for hatred. The New Testament uses it especially to refer to outbursts of anger or the angry words that come out of our hearts. See, as with all sins, the hatred or malice or anger begins internally and then it bubbles up and finally spews out in those outbursts of anger. And if the goal is to love from the heart, then this sin is one that runs in the complete opposite direction, a giving over of your heart to anger and to malice. See, a malicious person isn't just overcome by the circumstance, isn't just overcome by anger and hatred. He or she desires it. A desire of evil for another person. You might think about it in the terms of a wasp. They don't sting to warn people or to protect their nests, or to defend. They sting because they like it. They just do. They like to hurt people. Does that shock you? I'm talking about a child of God here who has been born again to a living hope in our Savior, Jesus. We're talking about someone who has the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and they're malicious? No, it should shock you. That's the point. A malicious anger wages war against Christian love. It wages war against Christian growth in you individually. But the gospel tells us that having been born again, the spirit and the word are at work together in you to to bring life and to bring a new heart that lays aside what was sinful and puts on something that is new. Peter uses a word that uh, is literally to lay it aside. It's like taking off, taking off your jacket. Maybe you've been uh, outside working or something like that and your work clothes are filthy. You come in and you, you take it off and lay it aside and you put on clean clothes. And the filth of those external things, it 
as it applies to malice, is one that is incredibly damaging. All you have to do is to read, read through the book of Proverbs, and you'll recognize how common a sin it is and how damaging it is. Describes the angry man as tearing down his own house around him. That's what malice does. So Peter calls you to pay attention to the temperature of your heart. If it overheats, think of it as the, as the light on your dashboard that begins to flash when your engine overheats. If you overheat, getting frustrated with your spouse, your children, your brothers and sisters in Christ, it's time for you to pay attention to that light. Recognize the sin of malice and pray that the Lord would enable you to put it off, to lay it aside, to put it to death. Don't blame your circumstances. Don't blame that you're suffering. Don't blame that you're under persecution. Recognize the sin that it is. And as a child of God, put away malice. And connect it to that last phrase the truth that is governing all this. Put it away by tasting and seeing that the Lord is gracious. I'd urge you with each of these to meditate on how tasting and seeing the goodness of God is going to address these fundamental sins that are so damaging. Something for you to develop on your own. Let me just suggest that as you taste and see the goodness of God, it will shape those things that you have been selfish about, those things that may cause you to become angry or frustrated because you take contentment, you take delight in finding that God is good. The second sin that Peter mentions is deceit. The word that's used here could also be translated as cunningness or treachery. It stands over and against how God has called you to love with a pure heart. Purity has a sense of, uh, of, of cleanness, of openness. It's not polluted. Or deceit has that idea of, of tricking someone. Have you ever struck a deal with someone? Maybe you've... Uh, Maybe you've uh, gone to a garage sale and, and you find something and you, and you haggle a little bit, you get, a, you get a price and then you walk away and find out it's broken. <laughs> and the owner knew that, but they represented it to you as working all in one piece just fine and they swindled you. That's deceit. has no place in the body of Christ. Think of how damaging it is to deal with your brothers and sisters in deceit. How can you live with someone when you never know if their yes is yes or their, their yes is no, or, or maybe it's something different, maybe they're manipulating you. 
Christian love from the heart is pure and peaceable. Christian love wants the best for the other person. It pursues what is best for the other person. As a child of God, put away deceit by tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. If you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, the desire for him leads to a contentment with those around you. A contentment that, that leads you to deal honestly rather than trying to manipulate that other person into a situation where you come out ahead. Thirdly, hypocrisy. Hypocrisy has an opposite, too. It stands over and against sincerity. In the verses at the end of chapter 1 leading up to this, Paul, Peter has said to love one another with sincerity. The hypocrite only pretends to love. might be a subset of deceit here. When you pretend to love someone, it, it just isn't love, though, is it? The hypocrite says one thing to your face and then turns around and represents it completely different to someone else. Maybe they, uh, they try to gain your trust or try to get approval, but behind your back, it's totally opposite. Think about how damaging that is to someone that you trust. Think about how damaging that is to someone that you love. As a child of God, put away hypocrisy by tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. There is no falseness. There is no pretend in God's dealing with you. He deals with you sincerely. His love is genuine. It's without any ulterior motives. That pure love then shapes us to respond to him in the same type of love and to respond to others with that same type of love. Next is envy. When you envy, envy someone, you want the things that they have. You want their money. Want their honor, their wife, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And not only do you covet what they have, but you come to resent that they have something that you don't. You might even find yourself happy when your neighbor loses that thing that you are coveting. Ever felt that way? How mean is that? To be happy that your neighbor has lost something. And it's not that you now have it, it's just that you're happy that they don't have it anymore. That's what envy is and what envy does to you. Think of how devastating that is to Christian love and to the fellowship of believers. 
Think of how devastating it is to your own soul. Think of it this way. It grows bitter over the blessings God has given to others. As a child of God, put away envy by tasting and seeing that the Lord is gracious. He has dealt with you not in a remembering of your sins, but he has dealt with you graciously. He's extended mercy, he's extended grace to you. Posture that we extend to one another in Christian fellowship. The fifth sin that Peter mentions is evil speaking. This word is often translated as slander, telling lies about another in order to damage them materially or to damage their reputation. This has in mind the ninth commandment that has a forbidding of bearing a false witness against your neighbor. We summarize that as telling lies. And it implies a duty. It implies upholding your neighbor's good name. Now, it doesn't take very much imagination to realize how damaging lies are to the unity of the church. It doesn't take much imagining to see that slander tears down Christian love, tears down the relationship that you have with one another. And at the same time, recognize that it is damaging to your own soul. If you tear down your brother or sister, you tear down the house of God, you act against Christ himself. And following the analogy of the church as a body, if you damage a part of your own body, you are damaged as well, right? You can't cut off your arm without feeling it yourself. Slander does this type of damage. As a child of God, put away evil speaking by tasting and seeing that the Lord is gracious. God speaks love to us. He speaks truth to us. We do the same with one another. In saying these things, Peter has already said a mouthful. As I said, this is not an exhaustive list of the sins that might damage the unity of the church. We tend to fly apart already because we still struggle with sins. If you take up these as a meditation, you will find that these very specific confrontations will help you in your relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. You will also find that they will help you in your relationship with God himself. Because Peter now turns to things to put on. And after giving a list of the sins, you might expect now that there would be another list of things to put on. But Peter emphasizes just one thing to put on. He emphasizes to 
desire the pure milk of the word. Connect, connect that to verse 3 again as well, as I've been doing. Since you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, desire the pure milk of the word. And here Peter chooses a very rich illustration. I think the children would especially in, uh, enjoy this one. You'll understand how this works. Peter compares it to a baby. A baby who is hungry. Now, you don't have to know much about babies to know that when a baby's hungry, he or she is going to tell you. They want their mother's milk. And they want it now, right? <laughs> a baby will cry and ask to be fed. A baby longs for that milk. Now, don't carry the analogy too far. I know that babies come to eat other things or even early on can, can have formula, but you get the point. Babies need milk. Babies need their mother's milk. And this, uh, this longing for milk highlights two very practical steps for the Christian life that has the aspect of putting on a desire for the pure milk of the word. And so I'll, uh, I'll say the same thing but emphasize it in two different ways to get, get at this. First of all, a baby longs for his mother's milk. I'm going to underline here, speaking first to what a baby needs. I've already said it, a baby needs milk. It is absolutely essential that a little baby gets the nourishment that comes from its mother's milk. You need God's word. It is absolutely essential for you, for your spiritual well-being, you need the pure milk of God's word. In this case, Peter describes it as longing for the spiritual, uh, unadulterated milk. And he, he has a, a very particular wordplay here. He says, long for the spiritual non-deceitful milk. He uses the very same word that was he used in verse 1 about our relationship with each other should not be deceitful. And now he says, here is what is not deceitful. God has revealed himself in his word. There is no deceit in God's word. And so the the New King James Version supplies what is understood from the rest of Scripture as how God communicates himself as spiritual milk. He supplies the, uh, that it is the spiritual milk of his word. This is what you need. A baby can't live or grow without it, and a Christian cannot live without the nurture of God's word. With it, you will grow. That's what Peter goes on to say. With it, you will, you will grow in respect to salvation. And I want you to pay attention that this is an instruction that's given to you indiscriminately of your age. 
without any regard to how long you have been a Christian, you need God's word. It's not just for those who are new Christians. All of you need God's word. I need God's word. I say that because there is an error that pastors face. Errors, the error is to, uh, to, to slip into neglecting my own spiritual feeding on God's word. And only using it as a, as a tool for ministry. I need God's word. I, I hope that you will pray for me in this. That I would be nurtured myself by God's word. You need God's word. As you have tasted and seen that the Lord is gracious, recognize your dependency on him by longing for that as earnestly as a baby longs for his mother's milk. And that's the second thing that comes out here. First was a baby longs for his mother's milk. I'm going to say the same thing, but emphasize it differently. A baby longs for his mother's milk. I'll speak to a baby's attitude here. I'll get the children's attention again here. Have you ever seen a baby grow tired of its mother's milk? Did you ever hear your baby brother or sister say, milk again? Oh, I'm so tired of this milk. I wish I had chocolate milk. That's <laughs> not what a baby says. Baby says, feed me. I want that milk. You need the milk of God's word. Long for it. Long for it, and I'm getting at the attitude that you have towards reading God's word and thinking about it. There's something beneficial about developing spiritual disciplines. I use that term a lot, and it's a, it's one that's a it's good to think about how we learn to live the Christian life. There is discipline about it. It's a little bit like practicing to play your instruments. You have to do it regularly to get better and better at it. But underlying the discipline, there is a desire. There is a longing that needs to be communicated as well. As you have tasted the goodness of God, long for more of it. You know what it's like when you taste something that's good and you want to take another bite and another bite and another bite? This is what God has laid out in front of you. It's like a feast. Here I have in mind not just what Peter calls it, the pure milk of the word. Throughout the scriptures, you'll find lots of different ways that the Bible speaks about the good feast that God lays in front of us. Here it's something essential. The milk a baby needs. 
Or think about the bread of life that is offered to you in Jesus Christ. Or think about the water that sustains us. Think about how tasting and seeing how good this is, that there is a delight that comes when you understand that this is good, that it is a rich feast provided for you. Sometime ask my wife Vicky about her conversion. When she was a teenager, her, her family began to go to a Bible club. It practiced and that taught them how to read the Bible and to memorize Scripture. She wasn't a Christian. And she hated it. It was tedious. But as she tells it, when she became a Christian, there was a remaking of her heart. God gave her a new appetite. She came to love God's word. And just like I said in the first section about you need God's word, the longing for God's word goes to all of you, for new believers and old believers. You never outgrow this sense of longing. But you can be distracted from it. You can come to be bored with it. You can come to want chocolate milk instead. Follow that analogy, you can come to think that you know it all. And since you know it all, you kind of glaze over what you read. There may be certain habit that's there, but there's no delight. There's no desire. Or maybe that you... Uh, you think you know it all, and so your attention turns away from, from the Word, which is our steady diet, and you begin to read what others say about the Word. There's value in those other things, if they truly reflect what the Bible says, but they should never replace what the Bible says. You need that steady diet of the Bible, a longing for the Bible. That's where verse 3 comes in. If you have tasted the grace of God that he is good, you will long for more. And you will find that he provides that riches, uh, rich, richness of food, the essentials of milk, the sustaining meat, the sweetness of honey, the bread of life, and so on. Long for it. Delight in it. Make it a, a part of your daily practice to drink deeply of God's word, for by it you will grow in respect to your salvation. Well, I'll close by putting this back into the context of Peter's words. Peter gives two practical things to promote Christian love. Or to put it another way, two practical things to promote unity in the church. Put off and put on. Put off malice deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Put on longing for God's word. These will protect and promote your own Christian life 
and will protect and promote the Christian love that is shared in the fellowship of believers. God grant us such love for one another, such a devotion to his word. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would give us such grace. Thank you that we have tasted and seen that you are good. And having tasted, having captured a taste of what is good, may we long for it more and more. Lord, we long for you. You have given us your word so that we may know you and to know our Savior, Jesus Christ, and the power of your Spirit within us. So, Lord, we pray that we would use what you have given to us. We, we would use your words to accomplish these things. And Lord, may this be part of our growth in grace and part of what you give to us to help put off those sins that so easily entangle us. God, forgive us for tearing down the body of Christ. Forgive us for those sins that are so damaging to one another. I pray, O God, that you would make us conscious of those, that we would see them in ourselves. We would repent of them. You would give us grace to put off and to put on. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's close by singing of our delight in God's word, this time from Psalm 19, 19, selection B, and I invite you to stand to sing.